0: So, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a huge Tennessee Titans fan, which means almost nothing nowadays, but it used to mean something at a point when the Titans used to win football games. Um, There were glory days, and at the helm of that team was a man named Jeff Fisher. Hayden now gets the glory of Jeff Fisher as a Rams fan. He betrayed us and went to the team that beat us in the Super Bowl. Um, But I loved Jeff Fisher. He had a mustache, he had slicked back hair, and slicker pants, and he was solid and consistent, and I had the biggest man crush on Jeff Fisher. And I had the privilege, um, near the end of my high school days, of going to a Titans game down in Tennessee. And while I was down there, I was stalking Jeff Fisher, and I realized he had a daughter of a similar age as me. And this just transformed my entire future. Um, the idea that I could, if I were to marry her, I would be Jeff Fisher's son-in-law, but son. And and so my whole life went into this consuming thing of if I could just meet Jeff Fisher's daughter. And so after the game, um, and the Titans won, it was probably the last game the Titans won, um, and uh, I go to the gate where all the players are coming out, and you're kind of getting autographs from players, um, and then... Uh, my we were, my mom yelled something about Montana because at the time, Jeff Fisher's son was playing on the football team, and Tara came over out of nowhere, like a like a sprite, and uh, started talking to my mom about Montana. Um, and this is before Sarah. Okay, Sarah's not in the picture. My lovely wife. So it's okay for me to talk like this. Um, and also, you'll see I was not a threat um, because Tara Fisher, which is her name, came up and started talking to my mom. And I just froze. I just stood there like this in a Titans hard hat jersey with a flag just like this. <laughs> and my mom was having this conversation. I, I don't think I said anything. I was just kind of like nodded. And then she left. And that was the end of that. Um, but being a sleuth in the peak of the Facebook days, um, actually it was in the, the early onset of the Facebook days, I went on Facebook and I looked for Tara Fisher and I found her. And so I added her as a friend, and she accepted the friend request. And I was like, this is, this is a Disney movie. <laughs> this is how it happens. Um, and, and, and so I'm so pumped, and I'm at school, and I come back, and actually, I was in college at this point. Yeah, I was totally in college. Um, because I came home to the guys uh, who I was living with, and she had sent me a message to be like, hey, who are you? <laughs> And in my mind, I'm like, well, she doesn't care who I am. We're already friends. Um, But it sparked the debate of the century between me and my roommates as to how I was to respond to this. Do I lie and say I knew her? Do I give a long explanation of my ties to Montana and my love for her father's mustache? Or do I just keep it short and to the point? And I don't really remember. It was hours of deliberation in this house of how I was to respond to Tara and Regardless of how I responded, by the end of the day, she wasn't my friend anymore. Um, she had unfriended me on Facebook. Um, and not only, looking at the story, not only was I an idiot at the point of meeting her, standing there, waving it, who wears a... It's just, if you could have seen me, I had no shot. Um, Uh, And and so I was an idiot in the moment of meeting her, and I didn't have what it took to make this a sustainable relationship in the long run. It was just a disaster. And this was a moment I was so excited about, and it fell flat on its face. Um, And what this story in humor illustrates is something that really all of us experience on some level. We all encounter things in this life which excite us, stir us, and motivate us in powerful ways. And we can identify, though just, just think of your life. And you could probably identify points in your life where you had a similar type excitement or anticipation for something that happened um, and you experienced something fantastic. But my question I want you to think about is, how did you respond to it? What was your response to that moment in your life? And more specifically, outside of just my memory of looking back at that event, outside of just hindsight, What impact has that moment had on the rest of your life? How has that changed you? And tonight we're going to look at a story, we're preaching through the book of Mark. We're going to look at a a story in the book of Mark called the transfiguration. Um, and, And we'll get into what that word means in just a little bit, but here's what we're going to see tonight. Tonight we're going to see the transfiguration of Christ shows us the person to which we should respond and also the hope through which we live as Christ followers. We're see the person to which we should respond and the hope through which we should live as Christ followers. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into Mark 9. Lord, we thank you for tonight. Um, we thank you for this picture you um, paint for us in the gospel of Mark, Lord. And I pray that as we look at it and as we encounter Jesus through your word, um that we are led to worship in right ways, that we are led to a sustainable life transfixed on your glory. Um, we pray that what happens here on a Thursday night in Chem 123 is something um, which carries on uh, to all the buildings on campus throughout the week as the gospel goes forward with your people. Um, we pray you're blessed tonight as we close in worship and fellowship. Uh, we love you, Lord. We praise in your name. Amen. So, For those of you uh, who haven't been here the last two weeks, uh, we we started up post-break, and there's a, a distinct shift that's happening in the Gospel of Mark. We're in the first part of Mark. No one can really get a peg on who Jesus is. In fact, the only person who's given us a clear confession of who Jesus is was a demon, and we're not really trying to follow that route. So there's this mystique surrounding who Jesus is. But starting two weeks ago... The disciples get it. And then Jesus starts talking to them. He says, I am the Christ. He says, and not only am I the Christ, not only am I the Messiah, but I'm going to come, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be murdered. But this week, rather than telling the disciples who he is, as we've seen the last two weeks, he's going to show the disciples who he is. And we see this story starting in chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and there he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus and so here we have something pretty phenomenal happening here something that's not normal that's not typical and Jesus takes kind of the three core disciples Peter James and John and he brings him up on a mountain. Um, and there, Mark says it kind of like nonchalantly. It says, and Jesus was transformed, transfigured before them. What does that even mean to be transfigured? Um, well, well, the Greek word, because all of you are interested, I know, um, but you might be more interested after this, is metamorphou, and, and from there, you could probably see the word metamorphosis, right? And so that's the root of the word to be changed. That's what it means to be changed. In this moment, while keeping his earthly self, he still looked like a human, he still was human. Jesus was utterly transformed. He was transfigured into something else. His body lit up, so much so that it wasn't just his body. It says his robes were radiantly white as no one could bleach them. It's not like Jesus found some great, old, or great bleach sitting around the house, and like when the sun hit him, it just radiates. This is something that man cannot do. What just happened to Jesus was phenomenal and fantastic and unbelievable, and it happened before the eyes of the disciples. And you could see, as Mark is saying this, he's grasping for words. He's like, how do I describe what's happening to Jesus? It's extraordinary. And not only that, does Jesus start glowing like a light bulb. All of a sudden, there appear Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, like this is a totally common thing that's going on. Now, Moses and Elijah are two Old Testament figures. I don't know if you're familiar with the Old Testament. It's kind of the first half of your Bible. Um, And and Elijah was seen as the chief prophet of the Old Testament. I mean, he was one that God spoke to, and Elijah would take that message, and he would proclaim it to the people of Israel, saying, Come back to God. Stop sinning, or you'll, you'll you'll reap destruction. Stop sinning, or you'll harm yourself. And he boldly spoke the word of God. He challenged the rulers of the pagan nations who were around him. But the inch, more interesting thing of Elijah's life is how it ended. Okay? And we see that um, in 2 Kings 2, verses 1 and 11. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Giggle, which is fun to say. Um, and then in verse 11... And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. This is a rare occurrence in human history, what we just saw. we just saw Elijah didn't die. He was, he was taken up by chariots of fire and horses of fire. This is not normative. And and because of this, because of Elijah's role as prophet, because of the things we saw Elijah doing, and because of the way in which Elijah was taken from the world, Judaism saw Elijah as this special role. Elijah was coming back. He didn't die. He had to be coming back. And as he was going to come back, he was going to inaugurate the end times. He was going to inaugurate what's called the day of the Lord, when God brings his plan to completion. And so that was Elijah. And then there's Moses. Uh, Moses was the one. I just started watching The Prince of Egypt with Owen. Right, Moses is the guy they make movies about. Um, and uh, he, he's the one who gave the law. The Ten Commandments was a portion of that. He gave these rules demanding the perfection of God's people. God spoke to Moses and he's like, I'm giving you rules not because I want to give you rules. I'm giving you rules because this is what it means to be set apart. This is what it means to live according to my rule. To live, under, to live where I am your king. And laws, procedures, and practices which set apart the people of God from the people of the world. But those of you, again, who have seen the Old Testament, we see time after time the people of Israel breaking these rules and not keeping these practices and disobeying God. And Moses, he's like, guys, it's, it's written out for you. He becomes discouraged. And so he's up on a mountain talking with God, and he just, he's like, God, if I could just see your face. If you would just show me your face, I would would have the strength to go on. If you could just show me your glory and the splendor of who you are, that would be motivating enough where I could put up with this. And maybe I could go back and tell the Israelites what I saw and describe to them how beautiful you are and what you look like and what you're capable of doing. But God speaks to him. In Exodus 33, verses 19 through 21, God says this, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he, that's God, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so here we have Moses asking to see God's face, but God says, you can't. You can't see my face. As a human, if you were to see my face, you would die because you can't comprehend it. I am so holy and you are so sinful. We are so separate. You can't see my face. It's not that God's being snobby here. It's that God is caring for Moses in this place. You see, Moses wasn't allowed to see the face of God. And Peter, who's one of the eyewitnesses here, um, Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, speaking of these Old Testament guys, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating, when the predicted sufferings of Christ, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so here we have Peter, and he's talking about Moses, and he's talking about Elijah. He says, these prophets whom God spoke to, He was speaking of this plan of redemption. They waited eagerly for the time of Christ. I I remember the the best, I don't don't know if it was the best, the best, I'll say the best, um, the best sermon that rings in my head that was preached at a youth group that I oversaw wasn't preached by me. It was preached by one of my interns, and he preached this text in 1 Peter, and, and he, put, he put himself in the role of the prophets where they're hearing this news of God. They're hearing this news of someone who's going to come, who's going to restore, a God who will be seen and dwell with his people, and they're just sitting there and they're like, so like tomorrow? Do I get to see it tomorrow? God's like, no. He's like, what about, what about a month from now? Will I get to see your plans unfolding then? God's like, no. And these prophets lived their whole lives proclaiming, wishing, desiring to see the goodness of God, and they didn't see it. But here on this mountaintop, Moses got his answer. You see, here on this mountaintop, Moses sees God. You see, both Moses and Elijah were in heaven. Moses because he died, Elijah because he was taken up. And, and here they see a picture of God in a way they have never seen him before. They were in heaven, and yet what they saw here on earth was special because they saw the face of God in Jesus Christ, the God-man. God made flesh, coming to put in place his plan of redemption, and all of human history up until this point yearned to see what those men saw on that mountain. They yearned to see the glory and radiance of God. You see, think think of something in your life that's breathtaking that you've seen. Uh, I just, three weeks ago, I saw the birth of my second child, and I remember the, the scene. I don't really remember it. I just remember how I felt. It's this mixture of n- nausea and nerves, but delight and, and grace. And many of you have had experiences like that, but what we see here. It's not just a transfiguration. It's not just something that's sparkly and cool. It's the full glorification of Christ. Here on earth, Moses and Elijah, Peter, James, and John are getting a glimpse of something we will not see again until heaven. Do you understand that? What these five men saw, no other human will ever see until Jesus comes back. You say, but wait, Jesus appeared to to thousands of people when he rose from the dead, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Jesus says, touch my hands, Put 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 your hand in my side, Thomas. And people saw him. But never do we see this language of radiance and glory until we get to Revelation 1 and Revelation 19, where we see Jesus riding back on a horse, coming to save humanity from evil. They saw something special. And you can imagine the emotions. We, we, we can see the emotions of Moses and Elijah, but they've been waiting for it, right? They were ready for this. They expected this. They're just seeing what they expected. But Peter, James, and John, can you imagine what's going on in their minds right now? Because they, we, we've seen them just, they're like a square wheel. They're just kind of like clunking along in this story, getting a little gra- gra- glimpse of who Jesus is, but then faltering understanding more who jesus is and then faltering and they see jesus coming and he's coming to proclaim a kingdom and when he teaches his character his parables he says the kingdom of god is like this and then he heals a man who's lame he heals a girl who's dead he heals a man who's demon possessed but here they see the kingdom jesus is the kingdom you see, the, in the glorified Christ, they see a place where there is no death. They see a place where there is no suffering, where there is no disease, there is no hatred. There is love, and there is glory, and there is beauty. And in seeing the glorified Christ, they see a window to perfection of what life should be, of who our life should be. And they see that, and they see, everything clicks for a second. The world kind of stops as they're overwhelmed by the waves of majesty. But this is where we see Peter's response. This is where we see what's called the, what I want to call the object of response. What are people responding to in this scene? We see Peter's response starting in verse 5. And Peter said to them, or said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. So Peter gets a bad rap in scripture of being this impulsive kind of dum-dum. And a lot of that is earned. Peter is brash and a little too quick on his feet and kind of thick-headed. And and, and in our background, what Peter just said sounds really dumb, doesn't it? It's like you have the the glory of Christ. You have Moses, the the great prophet, and Elijah, the great prophet. And Peter's like, 3 tents, boom, 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 done. And it just sounds silly as to what's going on. And that's kind of how I viewed this. But we need to understand first what Peter's thinking here. Because first, Peter recognizes it's good to be here. What an understatement, isn't that? Peter says, it is good for us to be here. And that's a realization I hope all of you have, that it is good for you to be in the presence of God. It is good for you to be in a position where you see the beauty and splendor of Jesus. It is good for you to be in the glory of Christ. And then, secondly, Peter knew that the Feast of Booths was at hand. And the Feast of Booths was this festival which celebrated the rediscovery of the law, of the ancient scriptures, and the wandering of the Israelites. And when this feast was first inaugurated in in the book of Nehemiah, what happened is they, they found the law and they were so hungry to hear what God was saying that they set up a tent so that the people could live outside and hear the law and they did nothing but hear it for a week. And so that became kind of a memorial service where each year they'd set up these tents and they'd remember the rediscovery of the law as God brought them out of captivity. And so Peter is thinking of this. This is going on at this time. And he says, this is the greater feast. It's not an unreasonable thing for Peter to want to build these tents. He's not just being dumb, Peter. He's being impulsive, Peter, but he's not entirely off base. And as funny as it may sound, Peter's response wasn't out of ignorance. Peter's response was out of misplaced worship and an incomplete understanding. And knowing that, God speaks to Peter. God corrects Peter. Verse 7 and 8. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. You see this, what God says here, is pretty much what God says when Jesus was baptized earlier in Mark, right? We saw that. Except there's a big difference here. When Jesus was baptized, God says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And here, what does God say? This is my beloved son. You see, this commissioning wasn't for Jesus. This was for the disciples. Everything that was happening on this mountain was for the sake of the disciples. This whole event is for you, who are Christians. You see, oftentimes we can get caught up in the same response. We can have moments of kind of gospel clarity. You get these if you you went to youth camps or vacation Bible schools or retreats like we're having later this spring or worship services or a sermon or a book and you get that flame, that ignition. You're like, oh, it's so clear. I want that picture of Jesus. I want to follow that Jesus. But like Peter, we can often misplace our worship and respond in an inappropriate way because we don't have a full understanding of what it is we're responding to. We kind of go off half-cocked, getting a glimpse of the gospel, but not understanding the totality of it. And so many times I think we could fall into the trap of Peter here thinking that the only response to the glory of God is to do something. That's immediately what Peter wants to do. He's like, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? It's almost like we become compulsive doers. And we could, and what's really happening when we do that is we're really not obsessing over who Jesus is. We're obsessing over who we are and what we can do to benefit that. We're obsessing over what we can do to build the kingdom, to expand the kingdom, to do for God rather than allowing ourselves to simply see the beauty of Christ, to taste the gospel of Christ. Because here's the thing. God says to Peter, he says, listen, stop. This is my son. Listen to him. Now, God wants Peter to do things, right? Jesus commissions Peter to build his church, okay? That's a big task. God wants Peter to do things. God wants you to do things, but first, he wants you to listen to Christ. First, he wants you to be exposed to the beauty of the son. You see, Peter needs to be transformed by the glory of Christ before he can ever ever do anything for Christ. You see, seeing a glimpse of the gospel and running off and thinking that you just need to do, 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 is like running into war with a gun, but no bullets. You got half of it right, but it's not going to lead you to the right place. And really, when we experience the person of Christ as they just experienced in a way we, we only hope to experience, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? As we see Christ, we have to come face to face with our sin. And I think that's part of Peter's terror. If this is who Jesus is, who's Peter? Peter's not God. Peter's not perfect. Peter's not glowing white. And so many times as we begin to see our own sin and we get to see the glory of Christ, we start seeing our own flaws. And in order to hide from that, we become busy with doing things, good things. We go to church, we read our Bibles, we go to community groups, we pray, we do retreats, we do all these things which look like a right response, but really in doing those, we're doing those things as an excuse of truly experiencing God. We do thinking we're becoming rather than just seeing Christ and being transformed by who he is. You see, we don't pause and let the gospel sit in us. And maybe it's just America and maybe it's just our culture, but this is something I wrestle with. What do I need to do? What do I need to say? What do I need to accomplish? And God is like, in the face of my glory, just sit and love it. Just sit and be still. The doing will come. The work is there, but experience me first. Still, others of us will respond in an opposite way. We'll get a taste of the gospel and we'll move past it. Thanks, God, I got it from here. We'll see this moment, again, you could be at a camp or a sermon or something, we you're like, oh, I need Jesus, okay, I got it. And then Jesus is more like a door we pass through and we don't ever look back. We live our lives as if we got like our, mem- our Costco card, we got it, and we're just good, we just flash it at the door every now and then when we wanna get in, and it doesn't shape our life. You think you can live your Christian experience outside the church of God, apart from the word of God, and apart from the spirit of God. But that's not a right response. That's not a right response to the object of Jesus. That's not how we're to respond. God wants us to respond by being faithful followers, transfixed on the beauty of Christ. That's what he wants. Before you start doing things, you need to know Christ. You need to love Christ. You need to be grateful for who Christ is. And so here, Peter, James, and John have just seen something beyond comprehension. I mean, humanity has seen cool things, right? I get bored sometimes and I go on stumble upon, and you see some pretty sweet things around the world and events and people and music. On that mountain, to those five men, that was the greatest thing the world will ever see. And they saw it. And then Moses is gone, Elijah's gone. The cloud's gone. They get up off of their faces because they're terrified. And it's just them and Jesus. And there's probably this really awkward silence. What just happened? And so they start to walk down the mountain. And as they're trying to process this, Jesus kind of complicates it even more. Verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man, and in the book of Mark, that's Jesus, fa- Jesus' favorite title for himself, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes, those are kind of the religious scholars, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he had said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And so here we see Jesus speaking of his suffering. And he says, hey, don't tell anybody what you just saw until I've risen from the dead. And the disciples are dumbfounded by that, and they're really wrestling with this idea of Jesus' suffering. We saw two weeks ago, Peter responded to that. He rebuked Jesus. He said, the Son of Man's going to suffer, and Peter took him aside and rebuked him. They can't understand what's going on here. And the disciples, so, so they ask kind of this obscure question. They say, Jesus, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first to restore all things? And here's what they're thinking. If Elijah is going to come back like the prophets say, And if Elijah is going to restore all things like the prophets say, then you don't need to die. If Elijah's coming, everything's going to be okay. They're going to make it right. You don't need to suffer. We can march to Rome and set up the kingdom and free our physical oppression from Rome. We got this. And see, the disciples are trying to avoid the cross, but Jesus is driving them towards it. He says, you're right. Elijah will come. He will restore all things. There will be restoration. There will be a new kingdom. All the wrongs will be righted. There will be newness, and things will be just as you saw them on the mountain. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they didn't recognize him. You see, Elijah came in the Old Testament, and he was met with unbelief and unbelief and unbelief. And then we see later in the other Gospels, in the same narrative, that Jesus refers to John the Baptist as the new Elijah. John the Baptist was the Elijah preparing the way for Jesus. But what do we see happen to John the Baptist in the New Testament? He wasn't believed. He was eventually murdered for what he believed. And so Jesus said, if this is what they did to Elijah, if this is what they did to John the Baptist, what do you think they're going to do to me? Don't you get it? It is written that I will suffer for you. You see, here we have the disciples. And and I can't, I'm saying this with you. And I can't wrap my mind around it. The disciples saw the clearest picture of Jesus humans will ever see. Until we're in the throne room of glory, they saw the clearest picture. Picture this side of death. They saw Jesus fully glorified in a way we will not see. They heard God speak directly to them. They saw Moses and Elijah appear. And in that moment of great clarity, there's still great obscurity. They didn't get it. How could the disciples respond properly if they were still confused at the clearest picture God could have given them? Well, Peter, he witnessed this event. And we don't see it in the book of Mark, but we see Peter gets it. It clicks for Peter. And we know that because he talks about it in 2 Peter. He gives an interpretation. He's looking back at this transfiguration. Look at what Peter says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of Jesus Christ. He's like, we didn't lie to you. This gospel we preached, it's not a myth. Hawaii? Why? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all, That no prophecy of Scripture comes from from someone's own interpretations, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here Peter recounts this story of this transfiguration, this wonderful event. But he goes on to say, "There's something greater. There's something greater." He says, "We have Jesus, and we have the Scripture." Jesus in scripture, something greater than that phenomenal experience on the mountain, something greater than the clearest picture God has ever given human eyes. How do you get greater than that? Okay, I'm asking you. Okay, take off your Sunday school glasses. Have you seen the radiant image of Christ? No. Have you even seen bleach bleached whiter than any man could ever bleach? No. Have you heard the audible voice of God proclaiming to you and pointing to Jesus? No. So what gives Peter the audacity to look at that moment of glory and say we have something better? The cross. What's the greatest difference between Peter's perspective in Mark 9 and his perspective in 2 Peter? It's that he saw the cross of Christ. You see, that's why Jesus charged the disciples to not speak of any of this until after he had risen from the dead. Because it's true that while Jesus was fully glorified here on this mountain, he's fully understood in light of the cross. On the cross is where we gain the correct interpretation of who Jesus is. And this is the second portion of the puzzle. This is the hope for following You see, there's a lot going on in this text of huge theological significance. You see, Moses stood in the Old Testament as the portrait of the law. He stood as a reminder of the perfection God demanded. If you want to be God's people, you're perfect like God. Be holy as I am holy, God said to his people. A perfection that we could never meet through all the books of the Old Testament. We can never meet those rules and regulations. Elijah stood as the mouthpiece of God, speaking the word of truth, yet being rejected and thrown away. That cloud we saw on the mountain, that cloud that spoke from God in the Old Testament, it was in the cloud that God dwelled among his people in a real way. It was a pillar of cloud that led the Israelites by day, bringing them to the land that God wanted to bring them where they needed to go. But did you see what happened on that mountain? Did you see the significance of what just happened? Look back at verse 8. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Moses, gone. Elijah, gone. The cloud, gone. Why? Is it just because they needed to go home? No. God's saying something here. Because in Jesus, we have the full perfection of God. A perfection the law couldn't meet. In Jesus, we have the true word of God, a word that cannot be rejected. In Jesus, we have the real presence of God. You see, the whole scripture, the law and the prophets, they existed not to stand on their own, but to bring us to the person of Christ. And the person of Christ exists to bring us into the presence of God. You see, how is Jesus perfect? He was fully God, fully man, fully sinless in every way. How is Jesus the Word? He is the gospel himself. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the kingdom. He is the spoken plan of God's redemption taken on flesh. And how is He God's presence? Because through His saving work on the cross, sinners are granted reconciliation, a restored relationship, and brought back into the presence of a holy God. So, how are we to follow Christ well? Are we to look back at that phenomenal experience of our own conversion, or that sermon or that worship song or that book we read, and we look back and we grab that and we try to squeeze every drop of motivation out of that? No. You see, Peter, James and John wrote or we're here at this transfiguration. James doesn't talk about it. John, he wrote a whole gospel. It's the only gospel that doesn't include this. This magnificent event, the only gospel writer who was there didn't find it important. And Peter, who we just saw, he wrote of it, but he used it to point to something else. You see, the key to your Christian experience is not constantly to look back and to try to squeeze energy out of an experience you've had in the past. It's to look forward and to see what God is doing in the here and now in your immediate life. You see, God's word, what Peter said, we have something more sure, more sure than a shining Jesus standing before you. We have something more sure, the word of God. You see, scripture doesn't, in Scripture we don't just memorialize God. In Scripture we encounter God. This isn't just a book we wrote to remember. This is a book we wrote to transform. We didn't write. God wrote it. This is a book which was written to transform us through the scriptures and through the cross that the scriptures proclaim we have a greater picture of God's glory we have the picture of God's glory which will only be surpassed when we see Jesus face to face you see that word metamorphoo it turns up again that word transfigured and we see it in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. You see, there is a kingdom dripping in glory. There is a hope this world can't contain. There is life beyond the grave. There is a radiance which is transforming. The question is how will you respond to it? How will you respond to the glory of Christ? You see, there are some of you in here who have seen this gospel and it makes sense. There are some of you in here who who have not yet seen that, but you are held responsible for your response to it. You are held responsible for how you see and respond to Christ. And I pray that God would be kind to you as he was kind to the disciples and that he would reveal himself to you and he will say, this Jesus is my son. This Jesus is what you've been looking for. This Jesus is of greater worth than all the world, is of greater power than the entirety of riches and fames, is of greater treasure than all the wealth of the world. This Jesus is the Christ Because as fantastic as that mountain was, we have a greater picture of Christ when we see Christ on the cross. So tonight, will you respond to Jesus rightly? Tonight, will you gaze at the beauty of Christ and be transformed by his splendor? Will you stop seeing your change and your growth happening from things you can accomplish and things you can do? But will you see Jesus as the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before you, endured the cross to bring you into his kingdom and transform you by his glory. For you Christians who are in here, how will you follow Christ? Will you follow him in vain emotionalism, looking back instead of looking at scripture? Looking back at your conversion, trying to labor in your own power, out of your own motivation, remembering what you have done in your own life, or will you see that Jesus is the Christ, God's beloved son? Will you listen to him Will you be so transformed by the presence of God that you're able to do rightly? Will you see that because we have Jesus, we now have the presence of God here with us? God with us, that's what Emmanuel means. We have him, he's here, he's changing us. Don't be naive to that. And we have been empowered by the presence of God to do something great. You see, the disciples had work to do. Listening to Jesus wasn't the only thing they had to do, but listening to Jesus was the first thing they had to do. God wants to use you. God's going to use you for discipleship and evangelism, and it's not going to happen because you feel like it needs to get done. It's going to happen when you look at Jesus and see that he's empowering you to get it done. Are you struggling in that? Look to Christ. Are you weary of that? Look to Christ. Are you unaware of that? Look to Christ. You see, one day, we will see that radiant glory again. But in the immediate, the cross is a sufficient motivation and a constant reminder of the glory which will one day become our reality. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is... Um, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. We thank you that in Jesus, we see a perfection we could never attain. In Jesus, we see a truth we could never have grasped on our own. In Jesus, we have the presence of God we could have never earned by our own merit. In Jesus, we have life. In Jesus, there is glory. So Lord, make us ones who respond rightly to Jesus. May we respond in right worship, in adoration at the throne of him who took away our sins on the cross. And for those of us who see that, Lord, through Jesus, may we be followers transfixed on his glory, working not out of our own power or vain emotion, but working out of the, the, the Christ we see in Scripture and the power he's given us in the Holy Spirit. Lord, grant us clarity so that we too may be transformed from one form of glory to the other. Love you, Lord. Praise in your name. Amen.